0: Simply saying the name Knights Templar evokes a strong response from most people. The concept of a mysterious and powerful organization vanishing almost instantly without a trace is an intriguing one, and the mythos that has sprung up around it in the centuries since have done nothing but grow that reputation. Today, we're going to talk about who the Templars really were, why they were founded, and what role they played in medieval society. Let's begin. Alright, we're here on HI101. I'm here with uh, Colin Oliver. Hello. How's it going? Not too bad. Really happy to have you on the show. Uh, Glad to be back. This is the um, this is the 13th topic that we've done, and uh, that'll actually... I didn't actually plan that, but it kind of works out fairly well. There's... Uh, I don't know if you know about this, but there's actually... Some people will call it a, an urban legend, some people put a little bit more credence on it, but there's there's a, a tie between uh, the Templars and the Friday the 13th, or the, the number 13... phobia that we'll get to a little bit later okay again it's a little unsubstantiated but this is the knights templar we're talking about here so that's about par for the course yep so (laughs) as we all know the knights templar are a secret society that founded the freemasons uh and they fight the bilderberg group uh to protect the lizard people and wait no no no, this isn't my crazy illuminati uh conspiracy theory show (laughs) and don't forget about the holy grail well yeah it's a philosopher's stone that grants them infinite wealth and everlasting life so no 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 no. and and i mean i feel like when when the name knights templar comes up that's sort of where people end up going because uh there's there's a big mystique around the order and what exactly they were what happened and almost none of the conversation actually has anything to do with who they actually were what they actually did what their purpose was. It's what are they still doing that it's, we don't know about. <laughs> it's what, what are they still doing. Exactly. Exactly. And I find that really interesting. So I was really excited to tackle this uh, this subject. And I'm sure it's not going to surprise you at all that a lot of this stuff is going to seem a little bit run of the mill. I don't want to say that it's not interesting but, I mean, there are no lizard people involved. Sorry to disappoint,
1: but... There was an actual order and they did normal human things for the most part.
0: For the most part. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, to talk about the, the Knights Templar... Well, I mean, how, how much do you know about the Knights Templar that you could actually, like, point to the, the historical order and, and say, I know this about them?
1: Very little. I, I could probably point to a time period. Which would be? Uh, 13th century...
0: I I mean yes it uh, that that would be the the height of them was the 13th century. It was, uh, they were around for maybe 200 years. That's really good actually. Yeah, 200 years. Oh, I'm doing great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and really they were they were founded in sort of this environment of the uh, the Crusades, right? The 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 Templars and the story of the Crusades kind of go hand in hand. We're not going to get too much into the Crusades today because that's kind of a completely different subject. Really interesting, but we only have so much time. Right. Uh, we should still talk a little bit about the Crusades, though, to kind of give a, a sense of what what world we're talking about here. Specifically, the First Crusade. Now, the First Crusade took place in the late 11th century, and was really the most successful Crusade in a lot of ways because this is the one where uh, the the a number of armies under European command at the at the behest of the Pope actually went into what we would now call Israel, and managed to take the city of Jerusalem. Now, other Crusades would have different goals, and some would be more successful than others, but for the most part, this is really the only one that actually accomplished the the, the goal that was set out for it. Right. And Jerusalem had been under Muslim control, specifically Arab control, for around 300 years before this Crusade, and the city of Jerusalem had very much become... Uh, a part of the culture of the near east before that it had been under the control of the byzantine empire so the the eastern roman empire after the the fall of the west right um and and so on so forth back into sort of the, the biblical times that people are a little more familiar with so what qualifies something as a crusade wow that's a great question and one that a lot of people would have a really hard time giving you an answer to <laughs> Gen- generally when we're talking about a crusade um, at least in the abstract, we're talking about a war that is waged for spiritual purposes. So there is, ideally, or 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 at least by the definition, there's no necessary political gain to be had out of it. It is a holy war, which I, I mean, I think a lot of people kind of miss that part of the the Crusade era is is that you know what what happened was the uh, uh, the Christian West saw. The muslim world kind of encroaching onto its boundaries and and started pushing back to some degree i mean the the causes of the crusades are so complicated i can't really get into all of that but 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 one of the things that they saw was was this loss of of christian territory and with it um, christian souls and it's really hard to put your mind or you put yourself in the mindset of these people who are looking at a world where it's it's not about My religion has more people than yours and you know kind of a spitting contest and it's not about uh, who controls the most territory or something like that they're looking at it from a very spiritual standpoint where they're going we are losing the salvation of humanity here and if the only way that we can spread the one true religion that we believe in is through force then you know then god has left us no other option but to do so and clearly this is what he wants of us and I mean, we're going to be talking a lot about religion, uh, as we talk about Knights Templar. It's it's fundamental to the Knights Templar, uh, and and while we do, it's important to remember that I mean, even even for the most devout people, in today's society, in in general, in the West, you know, religion is a personal experience. Spirituality is a is a is a fairly personal thing, and I mean, of course, there's there's communal stuff that comes up around it, right? Your your religious community, but in general, there's sort of you know, even people who are very devout, have, for the most part, have fairly separate lives. There's your, your life, and then there's your religious, your religious life, and that's part of your life. But not everybody brings every single aspect of their religion into sort of their day-to-day, doing the groceries or going to work or mowing the lawn. You know, and right. for these people, it was, for the most part, very all-encompassing. It it had an impact on every single part of their lives. And again, I'm, I'm speaking in very broad generalities. Of course, there are people alive today who take this tack towards religion and of course there were people at that point in time that weren't as zealously religious as all of this but it's certainly not the way that yeah we think
1: of of religious people today
0: of course i mean a lot of what happened in the uh the renaissance you know in the in the uh 17th and 18th centuries was this sort of rise of the legitimacy of the individual as an entity that has a will of its own that has a purpose that uh you know a person's des- personal desires actually have any real meaning or or import right before this point in time that kind of stuff didn't matter nearly as much as religious devotion and it's it's again it's going to be difficult to kind of get our heads in that space but for some of this stuff we're really going to have to give it a shot fair so enough. yeah it's it's kind of heavy stuff but Anyways, let's get back to that that first crusade. In 1099, they actually took the city of Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem is a holy city for all three of the Abrahamic religions, right? Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. So this was a pretty hard battle, but it was seen as a huge victory for Christian Europe. And more or less immediately, they founded a, a kingdom of Israel, um, or it was also known as the Latin Kingdom. And so. It it was essentially a a European state in Palestine. Obviously, this was constantly under attack by um, the Near East countries and and powers around it, but it it existed there for about 200 years or so. That's pretty good. Yeah, it it, it held out for a while. I mean, again, it was under constant attack, but it, it, it stayed. Yeah. And it's not as though no one from Europe ever went to jerusalem on pilgrimage before this but it was incredibly dangerous for them to go to jerusalem and the capture of jerusalem actually allowed a lot of people to make religious pilgrimages from europe that normally wouldn't have had the opportunity mostly because of security within the city but also because of sort of a um, a perception of security around having a, a, a European state in that area right So it's one thing as an as an individual to make a trip to the Islamic world as part of your religious pilgrimage. It's another to uh, make that religious pilgrimage to a Christian state. That being said, when you made your pilgrimage from usually France, I mean, a lot of what we're going to be talking about today is France, because you have to remember at this point in time, France was easily the biggest and most powerful nation in Europe. I mean, Italy, Germany were both kind of in shambles. They were these tiny little states when you're making your pil- pilgrimage from usually france you're going to land in uh, you're, you're going to take a boat from the south of france you're going to sail to uh, a port called jaffa on this on the the mediterranean coast and then you have to take a road from jaffa to uh, jerusalem and this highway was one of the most dangerous stretches of the pilgrimage even considering 11th century technology trying to sail across the mediterranean that is harrowing enough right you would get to jerusalem you'd probably be carrying quite a bit of money both to pay for your trip and to offer as as uh, religious offerings there would just be a whole bunch of bandits waiting along yeah, that road highwaymen are, are waiting for you exactly because yeah. they're going look at the look at these idiot europeans They've got so much gold and we're going to take it all. This is going to be great. <laughs> yeah. And people were getting hijacked like crazy. So in 1119, uh, this French lord, I'm only going to pronounce his first name once, but it's uh, Hugues de Payen, uh, approached the king of... Eh, it was okay. It was <laughs> right. Approached the king of, of uh, Jerusalem, of, of uh, the Latin state, and said, I want to found a new knightly order. And I want the purpose, the sole purpose of this order, to be protecting pilgrims from Europe coming to Jerusalem to pay their religious respects. That's all they're going to be. Is that what you would get a knightly order for? I mean, this is a new kingdom, and there were knightly orders being founded all over the place. You have to remember, this is like dead in the age of chivalry. There were all sorts of orders. Right. You could be a member of multiple orders in a lot of cases. And... know this is still feudal europe so you wouldn't necessarily be i mean very few people are being knighted by the king of france you would be knighted by a local lord of some sort and likely the order that you would belong to would have something to do either with this specific lord or an affiliation that this lord has so the idea of going to the king of jerusalem and saying whose name was Baldwin, by the way, Baldwin II, and and saying, (laughs) we want to found an order whose sole purpose is to do this. That wasn't unusual, really. There was already an order that had been founded around this time called the uh, Hospitallers. I don't know if you've ever heard of them. No, I'm not familiar. They basically were founded entirely on the pretext of setting up medical aid for uh, pilgrims who had come to Jerusalem because there weren't really many doctors in Jerusalem at this point in time. I mean, this is sort of the height of, you know, Islamic uh, scientific revolution, but they would have kicked all of those doctors out of the country, right? <laughs> or, or a lot of them would have left, or, you know, they were, they were far less available to pilgrims who also might not really feel that comfortable with an Islamic doctor because even if they found one that was willing to treat them, they might not necessarily trust them, and they might not necessarily be practicing medicine in a way that they would understand as medicine. Yeah, there's a huge cultural clash going on here, and it's it's that's another thing that's really important to underline. Like the, the differences between the the Muslims and the Christians living in this area are staggering at this point. It's very stark. So the hospitalers were there solely to provide aid, and they were already an order that had been founded completely on that premise. And this is a knightly order. Yes so like when i think of knights mm-hmm. i
1: think obviously of big guys in big metal armor mm-hmm.
0: carrying swords and yep. riding horses but this is like a medical knightly order yes but it was founded by noblemen and was administrated by noblemen who would have been knights now they would probably be lower grade knights basically because they wouldn't be inheriting their father's uh, land back home which is why they're here in the holy land and, and, and what they would be doing is, is kind of administrating people who wouldn't necessarily be knights themselves, but they would be part of the order. So there's this thing that comes up out of the Crusades, which is these these what they call fighting orders, which both the Hospitallers and the Templars belong to, as well as the Teutonic Knights, who have their origin around this time as well. And it comes out of this idea of crusade, of this this holy war, of this battle on behalf of religion which is that it's kind of difficult to reconcile laying siege to and slaughtering the inhabitants of a city in the name of spreading what is ostensibly a peaceful religion. Right. That's a really difficult thing to reconcile. Pretty sure there's a thou shalt not in there. It, it might be in there on, on one of them. <laughs> um, the, uh, Yeah, that's that's a big hurdle, thou shalt not kill. and And they're trying to figure out a way around this. So what they turn to is this code of chivalry, which is which is a code of conduct for nobles who who fight and they sort of marry this with the idea of of monastic orders right so taking religious vows of, of conducting oneself in a certain spiritual way and these orders that come up the His- hospitalers the templars especially but also the teutonic knights are both soldiers and men of god and it's this weird marriage that is is really really interesting and we'll definitely get a lot more into this as we go. Can I ask a slightly off-topic question? Of course. So
1: I'm a huge nerd okay and playing video games and role-playing games and that sort of thing yep. you, you hear this term paladin. Does I, that play in anywhere?
0: I'm saving this. Oh, I'm sorry but no 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 no, no, no <laughs> this is perfect this is perfect because when when this order was uh, founded by Dupin, um his his nephew was actually very close with the pope at the time. And ended up actually being sainted after his death. His nephew uh, named Bernard de Clairvaux, again uh, at some point Saint Bernard. But he was he was the he was also the patron saint of the of the order. And one of the things that he did for the order was basically to do PR for them and convince people that yeah, this is a legitimate thing that you can do, both helping people in a in a spiritual way as well as fighting in a in a, a secular manner. And There's a great quote that I found in like eight different places because everywhere that anyone that writes about the Templars ends up pulling out this quote where he said, a Templar knight is truly a fearless knight and secure on every side for his soul is protected by the armor of faith. Just as his body is protected by the armor of steel. He is thus doubly armed and need fear, neither demons nor men. How great is that? That's pretty epic. There's a reason (laughs) everyone pulls that quote. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, this idea of the the paladin, the holy warrior, someone that draws power from from their faith, absolutely is a Templar reskinned. That's that's exactly what it is. I mean, or Teutonic Knight or what have you. But everyone's thinking about Templars when they're writing these things. Right. So yeah, I mean, I, I, it was it was a bit of a hard sell at first. The uh, the original nine knights, when granted uh, permission in eleven nineteen, by King Baldwin there were only nine of them they took these uh, these vows of poverty, chastity, obedience, piety so very much what you would get as vows for for monks or for the priesthood. it, it very closely reflected the vows for the priesthood. Mm-hmm. but what and for the first for the first while it was just these nine guys that were literally going with groups of pilgrims and protecting them as they walked down this road. once Saint Bernard started, shopping them around a little bit if you want to call it that. Basically what he was trying to do was 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 push for recognition from the church because it was it was on this shaky ground of is this okay or not? Because are they monks? Are they knights? Are they both? What what is this, right? And that quote that I, I read is is from a, a a book called The New Knighthood. And his ar- his argument is that the new Christian knight needs to be both. He needs to be a warrior as well as a monk. And that that was uh, really the only way that you could conduct yourself in a manner that would help both protect and spread Christianity. Because just to be a warrior means that you risk losing yourself to sin through atrocities committed on the battlefield. but just to be a monk and committing yourself to uh, to prayer and to piety is the way that Christianity has been sort of shrunk down to the the smallest size it was right before this, this first crusade that without this this military or this secular power protecting it, that the faith doesn't have a chance of surviving. So how do they resolve the two? This is this code of chivalry? Well, yeah, there's a general code of chivalry, but also De Payen and Clairvaux Saint. Saint Bernard. Uh, write what is called the uh, the latin rule and it's a list of 72 different codes of conduct for the knights templar and this code of conduct is designed to be all-encompassing if you ever have a question about what you should be doing where you should be when you should be doing it how you should be doing it you look at the code and the code will tell you if it's not in the code you probably just shouldn't be doing it at all (laughs) it was it was very very comprehensive right And the code would somewhat resemble what you would see if you were joining a monastic order, if you were to join say the Franciscan monks or something like that. But with a lot of modifications for considering that these are fighting men and there's a lot of stuff that you have to sort of do to keep yourself in fighting shape that you can't necessarily do, uh, or that you can't necessarily keep up with a, 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 a pure monk with. So for example, instead of like extremely severe fasting rules They lined out exactly which days of the year they should be fasting, on which days they should be on a restricted diet, and on which days they should be eating meat to keep their strength up. Now, they wouldn't be eating nearly as much meat as some other people, but the idea is, listen, you still need your strength. You need to go into battle. Uh, If a brother was sick, he would be absolved of most of the uh, more strenuous physical activities or most of the fasting requirements to help him get his strength back. There were also rules on, you know, which prayers to say, when to say them, how to dress. Like, it was it was extremely comprehensive. How about relationships? None. None? Absolutely none. Yeah. Uh, you were forbidden from uh, contact with any women, and you were uh, forbidden to even look at a woman for too long, uh, including your own relatives. <laughs> harsh. It is harsh. And I, I, I was thinking a lot about this as I was reading through this stuff, and it sounds, I mean, you know, you you'd get completely hung out to dry for trying something like that these days but the idea here is to completely remove any uh, not not even even the chance for temptation but also even the remotest uh, suspicion of temptation from these men so not only is it not only are you trusting the Templars to 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 not uh, give into uh, the temptation of, of a relationship but you're also forcing them to conduct themselves in a way that nobody could point to the Templars and saying, you're being a hypocrite about this because I saw so-and-so doing this. The other thing that it's doing is trying to remove these men from any obligations other than to the order itself and to the mission of this order. The idea being that if you have a family, if you have people that you care about other than your fellow Templars, so if you remove the um, like any... Any ties to the world outside of the Templars, then you remove any misgivings that the person might have about his devotion to the order. If you have to divide your your priorities between what you believe is best for your family and what is best for uh, what you're being told by the uh, to do by this order, you know, all of a sudden you have a man who might not be as reliable as someone who's wholly devoted with uh, to this to this cause. So, did they target like
1: orphans and and? You know, people who didn't have a lot of
0: family connections to start with, or quite the opposite. They tended to target what you could call second sons. So, so uh, nobles who had been knighted but weren't actually really in the running for a lordship, because you got to remember in in Europe at this point in time, if you're not the firstborn son, you're not getting anything, and the options for someone who was thirdborn, fifthborn, male was probably the priesthood or maybe uh, a decline into the merchant class maybe take up trading but i mean that's a far cry from being a noble what you had an option to do now instead is to join the knight's templar i don't know how familiar this stuff is starting to sound like maybe it's ringing a bell from somewhere you remember the knight's watch from game of thrones i have not consumed any... You've never consumed them. No. It's funny, the uh, the vows that the people in the Night- Night's Watch take are actually kind of similar to the the Knights Templar in that they're not supposed to marry, uh, they are wholly devoted to that order and no other order, that their mission is completely free of any political affiliation, which is something that we'll get into later with the Templars, that they have a, a mission which is separate from getting involved in the politics of the day. Right. Right? There's... I mean, George R.R. Martin pulled inspiration from like everywhere in history but this is like that's that's one spot that he definitely pulled from the the templars on is is the is the vows so i mean when you joined the templars you signed over everything you gave yourself wholly to the the templar order you were to um all of your possessions you donated to the templars all of your and and anything that you had was completely communal including your clothes your armor your horses your weapons any food, all of that was distributed evenly between everyone. Oh, yeah. Sorry, this is some other random fact I know. Their mm. emblem
1: is
0: two guys riding one horse? Yeah, I was actually going to ask you about that. Um, I, I had printed off a, a version of it and wanted to know if you had noticed it. Yeah, I have
1: seen that before.
0: Yeah, so the true name of the uh, the Templars is... Like, the, the, full, the full name of it, rather, I should say, is the poor knights of christ and the temple of solomon emphasis on poor they were to give up all earthly belongings and there are rules in that set of 72 even as far as like if your horse is getting old and dying you can't even like go around directly asking for a new horse but you have to like you know humbly make it known to your brothers that you're having difficulty and that the master is supposed to hear about this and bestow upon you a new horse to keep you from Basically, getting too greedy. <laughs> I, I mean, the, the rules are really interesting. I, it's 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 a, it's too long a read and too long of a list to go over point by point. But a lot of the stuff, as I said, is really is really practical. Not only in you need to be super religious about this stuff, but like be careful you don't get too caught up in your own zealotry there's a rule in there basically saying don't be too proud of all of the sins that you committed before joining the order. Don't boast about how bad you used to be to make yourself look better now that you've joined the order and have become a pious man. Right. Because that's still pride. That's a distinction that maybe some of the, the other monastic orders are making at this point in time. But for the average Christian, not really necessarily something that they're being taught to, to do. I mean, and, and that is, if you think about it, that's a super boasty way to go about your faith. It is, yeah. And it's interesting that they thought of that to put that right in the rules. I like, used hey, to steal don't. things and murder people, but now... Yeah, exactly. Yeah. As well as sort of an injunction is using those as like stories to entertain other people. Because really what you're doing is still kind of introducing the notion of, of how entertaining and how interesting uh, the so life is. Are. Yeah. Right? So it, it's it's really interesting. We've kind of gotten to the founding, and we've gotten into a lot of different details on some of the stuff to do with the uh, the lives of the Templars, where they came from, things like that. I'd like to kind of circle a little bit, ba- a little bit more back around to the timeline, but I think first we'll take a quick re- a quick break. Sounds good. All right. Hey guys. Just wanted to mention that today, the the day that this episode is being released, June 1st, is actually the one-year anniversary of the start of this show, HI101, and I've had so much more response and uh, and interest in what I'm doing here, so much more than I ever really expected or, uh, or even hoped for, and I uh, really just wanted to say thank you, and I'm looking forward to the next year's worth of shows, so thank you very much. All right, we're back on HI101 here with Colin Oliver. Hello. And we were talking briefly about the emblem of the two knights riding the one horse, sort of signifying the, the poverty of the order, that, you know, they're so poor that they're doing their duty, but they're, they're two guys to a horse. That's how poorly off they are.
1: Right, and they've given up all their possessions. Uh-huh. Uh, and it's weird because I, I had this very vague notion from my limited knowledge of the knights that... They were actually fairly well off.
0: Yeah, all that sweet,
1: sweet Templar treasure. Yeah. Everybody's trying to get their mitts on. Exactly. That they're always protecting and
0: hiding in various locations. Funding the Illuminati and whatnot. Yeah. How are they supposed to do that if they got two guys to a horse? Well, I mean, first off, the reality of it is that the average knight would probably have three horses to his name. This isn't a ton compared to other heavy cavalry in Europe at that point in time. But you still need a couple of horses for a heavy cavalry. I mean, that horse is carrying an armored man who's carrying weapons on, on heavy charges into battle and may actually be wearing armor itself. That, tor- that horse gets really tired. So they weren't actually two men to a horse. Not at all. That was that was very symbolic. Right. And I mean, that, that picture is something that, you know, I, I had the one to show you here. But I mean, emblems in, say, the 12th, 13th centuries, they, they vary a lot. They don't stay that consistent because it's mostly guys actually drawing these emblems on things. You know, they don't have a graphic artist looking after all of this stuff. So when people show you the Templar symbol or the Templar this or that, take that with a grain of salt. (laughs) Fair enough. So if they're
1: trying to kind of, you know, be very, very humble about everything, Mm -hmm. why market themselves? Like why have one of their core things that they're advertising to the world be
0: that they're so poor? Because poverty is seen as next to godliness. I mean, if you look back to a lot of the, the parables in the Bible, Jesus himself is saying, you know, if you want to follow me, you know, give up all of your, up possessions all your possessions and right. follow me. Yeah. Uh, he, there's, uh, I mean, I hey, I'm riffing here. I don't have this stuff memorized, <laughs> no, but there's the, there's the one where he has, there, there's a parable where a rich man comes up to him and says, you know, what do I have to do to get into heaven? And he says to the man, it's easier to get, a camel through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to get into heaven. There's a lot of layers of meaning that's going on here, but we can cut right to the heart of it and say, it's hard. You need to be poor to get into heaven. And as, again, there's a lot more nuance, but really what it's saying is, if you have a lot, you need to be helping out the poor and not helping out yourself. Right. There's a base level that's necessary for a comfortable or even just a reasonable existence, and anything else should be going as charity to your fellow man because... Charity is one of the one of the three most Again, according to to Jesus one of the three most holy things that you can do, you know giving to alms giving charity uh, fasting so abstaining from uh, earthly pleasures and prayer so communing directly with God so uh, poverty is important to any uh, religious order at this point in time as one of the core tenets of holiness and and I mean, the, the 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 knights themselves really were quite poor. They had given up all of their earthly possessions. Right,
1: but individual to the order, to the order. So the order had all their possessions.
0: Yes, and what the order would do again? Is if that, you look I guess back they would to donate them. Or? The Latin rule, yes, they would yeah. donate them. They would use it to basically kit out the, the the order, make sure they that each man had his three horses, that each man had functional armor, weapons. were were able to do their job because, again, this is an order with a function that that is to protect pilgrims, but once that had happened, you know, the the money from there goes to to the order to do with as they see fit. I mean, if you look at the Latin rules, even if a man is given a gift, he basically has to go to his master. And by the way, this is this is sort of organized in houses that each is headed by a master, and then there's one grand master of the order. At least that's how it's going to look as we grow the order significantly, but the the one guy who's running the house he has to take that gift to him and say like is it okay if i have this and offer to donate it to the order as a whole so you might have someone donate a a a freshly slaughtered calf and say this is for food this is for all of you he has to take it to the master who then like doles it out according to his wishes that he sees most fair to everyone in that house if a family member sends a gift directly to one of the Templars, he has to go to his master for permission to actually receive that gift himself. Right. So you could join the Templars and your family could go, you know what, I know he's getting the best armor, I know he's well-funded, but there is this armor that you know means something to our family, we want him to wear this specific armor in battle. They could send it to you, then you would have to go to your master and say, is it cool if I actually wear this? Right. And he has to give you permission. And if he says no, yeah, you have to it. give it to the Order. right? Because he may look at that armor and go, you know what? You already have pretty decent armor, and there's this other guy. And his hasn't been doing so hot lately. I'm going to give it to him instead. I get the impression that they're a little more reasonable about it than that. They would probably let you wear that armor and give your perfectly good armor to the other guy. Right. But that is a thing that you are promising to do by joining the Templars. And I, I, I think I actually forgot to say before, Templar is a shortening of that uh, name, the poor Knights of Christ and the Temple of Solomon. Temple of Solomon, Templar, Knights Templar. Um, Weird that they picked out the word temple from all of those words. We're going to get to that very, very shortly. Okay. Uh, I promise. <laughs> but we were focusing on the poverty and their, and their wealth. Well, when St. Bernard goes around promoting this order and its legitimacy, the other thing that he does is promote it as a, uh, a noble cause, like as something that is worth supporting not just spiritually, but also monetarily. And so as the Templars become in vogue in Christian Europe and sort of gain acceptance, they also become very popular to make donations to. Rather than directly to the church, you can look at donating directly to the Knights Templar. And this isn't any different than if you wanted to make a donation directly to the Franciscans or Dominicans. You, know, it's, it's, you, you can donate directly to a, uh, any other monastic order as well. Uh, Most people would do that in addition to their regular tithes to the church. But, you know, again, you can donate directly. So as it grows in popularity, and especially as it actually um, gets made a favorite charity of the church in 1129, 10 years after it's founded, just the money starts pouring in from individual donations. When they were founded in 1119, the the order was given uh, the Al-Aqsa Mosque, on the temple mount in jerusalem as their headquarters this was a mosque that had been uh, captured in the in the siege of the city the al aqsa mosque stands on the temple mount which is also where the dome of the rock is and this is what people believe they're talking about when in the bible they talk about mount zion okay okay and this holds one of the most holy places for again, all three major religions important spot the t- the 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 Dome of the Rock is a is a, a shrine that is built over a rock that uh, all three Abrahamic religions believe was the rock that Abraham was prepared to sacrifice his son Isaac on. Um, if you're familiar with the, the the tale of the Binding of Isaac, if not, you should really look into it. It's a very important story uh, in a lot of people's lives. It's something you should be familiar with in general. It's also the place that many Muslims at least the the Shiite sect of of Islam believes that Muhammad was uh, ascended from so it's a big deal yeah Al-Aqsa mosque is off to the side the other thing that's uh, very important about the temple mount is that it's believed that this is the site of the first Jerusalem temple now I I don't know how much or how familiar you are with the the temples of Jerusalem. There was the first temple, which was built by Solomon. So the temple of Solomon, which is where they get the name from. They took the Al-Aqsa Mosque. They knew the the association with the temple mount to the original temple of Solomon. And that ends up in their name, right? The poor knights of the temple of Solomon. Uh, Poor knights of Christ in the temple of Solomon. Sorry. And this does nothing but good things for their cachet in terms of you know, spiritual legitimacy. So pretty important spot. Pretty in, important spot. How did they get they? King get Baldwin that? gave that to them as their headquarters. Wow. That's a good deal. This isn't that long after the fall of Jerusalem. It's 20 years, but it's not that long. And Al- Al-Aqsa Mosque was not really being used for anything that he considered legitimate. That doesn't mean it wasn't being used. But uh, the people who wanted into that mosque were not really given a lot of say in the matter, unfortunately. So he gave them that uh, that temple as as uh, as a headquarters, and they they dubbed it the Temple of Solomon. Now, likely the Temple of Solomon, if it even existed in that spot, which is by the way very contentious. You can't do an archaeological dig on the Temple Mount. There are there's there's so much. Oh, the, the red tape, just religiously, culturally, politically speaking, to try and dig that place up, it's its its essentially impossible. I'm sorry, are you saying that that's still a hotspot today? Yeah, but believe it or not, yes.
1: <laughs> Is it still contested? I don't understand.
0: <laughs> um, oh boy. Yeah. 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 Until we basically invent a way to see through the ground as though it was a sonar machine in water, we're never going to really know what's down there. Part of the problem with the temple of solomon being there is that part of the tradition of the first temple was there was this room called the holy of holies in which god himself actually existed at certain points in the year Um, and only the high priest of the temple was allowed in there and only on the one day of yom kippur right after he had just been absolved of all of his sins he was allowed to enter this temple and and god would appear to him in sort of a cloud of smoke now this is back uh you know in in solomonic times when you know in the bible god would actually appear as things as pillars of smoke or pillars of flame and people tended to have a much more personal relationship with him at this point in the in the story so you're not allowed to go into the holy of holies if you're jewish unfortunately we've lost exactly where that is so a lot of jews will, will actually stay off of the temple mount completely because they don't want to risk accidentally entering the space where the holy of holies once was it's it's a it's a very you know it's 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 one of those things that it, it might not necessarily resonate with you personally, but it's 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 still such an important part of some people's lives that, especially at that point in time, the 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 uh, the importance around this just physical space was was staggering. So, by having control of this temple, it gave them a lot of sort of religious power. Not in that they were holding a place hostage, but more that someone trusted this order to to protect and look after this this area. Right. And the uh, the Templars bought into it wholeheartedly. It's not going to do anything but help them complete their mission of protecting pilgrims. Because the bigger they get, the more pilgrims they can protect and the better they can protect them. So, the, uh, the push for support kind of kept going until in 1139, Pope Innocent II actually gave them full papal support as an order. Now what this did was elevate the order from being an order tied to the Kingdom of Jerusalem or the the Latin Kingdom and elevated it to something that has full papal backing which means that as long as the papacy exists the order has its support. Right. That you don't you don't get much higher than that.
1: No. That's Pretty good deal. And it works well with their whole, like, not being associated with governments thing. They don't need to be. They're associated with the highest, you know, uh,
0: authority in the church. Exactly. They've got everything they need. And what ended up coming along with that is the ability to cross borders unmolested, not pay any taxes, you know, be exempt from local laws. The idea being that they were answerable to the Pope as well as to their own vows. So they were answerable to God. This sounds like a recipe for corruption. It kind of does, doesn't it? You know, the funny thing is that as much... And and we're, and we're jumping ahead a little bit, but that's okay. As much as I read about the Templars, I found almost nothing about corruption within the ranks of these men. Really? Because, again, we're talking about a monastic order. I suppose. And yeah. we're putting ourselves back in this crusader mentality where when you sign up to be a Templar, you are giving yourself wholeheartedly spiritually and physically to this order that's not an that's not really a a commitment that you make lightly and what's more the masters were well within their power to turn someone away someone could turn up and say i want to become a templar they would say okay well we'll let you live with us for a while and then we're going to decide whether or not to bring you into our ranks and if someone seemed like they weren't going to cut it they didn't allow them to join the order okay so this is self-policing that's kind of actually working. Right. Which is interesting. But you have to, again, remember that that spiritual aspect of this, where they didn't just see themselves as knights. And, I, I mean, we talk about them as knights, and uh, a good 10% of the order were actually fighting men, uh, or, or knights specifically, I should say. Like, the entire order was able to fight when, when need be. But at the same time, they were very religious men, very pious men, and to violate the vows that they had made, which you know, did not include the Big Ten, like, you know, not stealing or killing and all of that stuff. Uh, and, and and far more than that, you know, to violate one of those rules was, it was a big deal. Like, you're not just breaking a law, you're breaking a covenant with God. Right. And which is what you
1: live by, which is, like,
0: everything you are. Well, I mean, the, the penalty for stealing if you're a regular person is whatever the local law is for stealing. The penalty for breaking these vows is eternal damnation right <laughs> which is a very very real thing to these people yeah so i mean this isn't to say that there was never any corruption within the templars in fact i i'm certain there was I'm, I'm positive it happened at some point but i i never found any anything to indicate that there was any widespread corruption amongst the order which is really interesting yeah again with an order as secretive as the templars that could just mean that it was really well hidden we're gonna get into their their downfall and and sort of the credibility of the charges brought against the against them. So we'll we'll talk about some of the stuff that was was uh, brought to bear against the Templars. But I, I I don't remember seeing any proof of them actually acting in a corrupt manner, at least on a systemic level or or even a you know on a local level that uh, an entire house would be acting that way or or, a, or someone in a higher level of power would be acting that way. That's really interesting. Right? Huh. Um, so
1: were they a secret? order at this point because it doesn't sound like they're doing too much
0: in secret there were a couple of things about them that seemed secretive to the outside right for example the uh, initiation ceremony it was kind of discouraged for outsiders to attend an initiation ceremony because it was meant to be like private kind yes of thing? because it's an intensely ceremony or a spiritual moment for right. the people who are being um initiated which is kind of the exact point where the whole Templar thing starts to unravel and it won't for a long time, but people are very, very curious. They're intensely curious. And if you tell someone that you can't see what's going on, they're going to want to see what's going on. Yeah. And I mean, at the the time it wasn't really that big a deal, but you know, as we go on, it's going to become a problem that they weren't letting people into their initiation ceremonies. Now there are tons of initiation ceremonies every day that the general public aren't allowed into. I, I, you know, I'm I'm trying to think of a a good example, but there 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 are lots of clubs where you're not necessarily allowed to walk into every single meeting. Yeah, exactly. You've got uh, Colin just held up his pinky finger. where he's Yeah, I just to, realized uh, this isn't
1: video, so me wacking my pinky finger is not going to be seen. But you're you're coach.
0: wearing a, an engineer's iron ring. I
1: am, and we had a ceremony in which I was given this ring. That guess what? Not supposed to talk
0: about it. Mm-hmm. And you know, I'm. I'm sure most people are kind of familiar with, at least in broad strokes, what happens at that. But I couldn't come and watch that ceremony. I'm no. not an engineer. Does that make it sinister? I assume so. I, well, mean, I mean, probably not at all. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Obviously, I'm pure evil. Yeah, that's that's what I gathered from this. Um, but uh, you know, it's it's not it's not really a problem in and of itself. There are things that happen. I couldn't go watch a, a papal conclave that doesn't make the entire bureaucracy of the Catholic Church inherently evil because of that reason. <laughs> it's not how it works. Sometimes yeah. you're just not allowed into things, okay? <laughs> Get over it. And, and for these men, I mean, this is the, this is their entire lives and it's, in, it's an intensely spiritual calling and it's in, an intensely private calling. A lot of what ended up happening with the with the Templar lifestyle after being initiated is that you live in an entirely Templar world. It's not that they don't have any contact outside of the house, but those aren't the people that you associate with on an irregular day. Those aren't the people that you're friends with. Those aren't the people that you're close with. And joining that order is very much, even though you're allowed to talk to people outside the order, it's very much cutting yourself off from the outside world because they can't possibly understand the level of devotion and piety that it takes to maintain membership within that order so to allow people to experience that transition in a private setting i think is a very reasonable thing to do totally so yeah just it reminds me of the whole birth certificate thing with obama where it's like well you 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 have to show us the birth certificate or we're not going to believe you're American. Maybe they vetted the guy. No, the, the public has a right to see it. Okay, well here it is. No, the long form one. It's like seriously. Just because he's not showing it to you doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Doesn't yeah. mean it's, yeah. Anyways, I, I, I found that really familiar there, where it's just this demand that the public has to be privy to every single secret of every single you know facet of information that right. someone possesses. Yeah. So yeah, I, I wouldn't dwell too much on the inf- uh, the the initiation at least at this point in time. Other than that, no, they weren't entirely. Or they they weren't incredibly secretive. If, if anything else, they were fairly outgoing. Uh, the the initial mission towards uh, escorting pilgrims means that they were in contact with a lot of people. As they were given donations and they they spread rapidly, that involved a level of administration that invo- that uh, entails dealing with the public. So what started to happen is this sort of fervor towards donating toward er, to the Templars picked up a little bit. You saw people actually donating land well, okay, what are we going to do with land? Are we going to sell it off? Or, hey, maybe we can actually use this towards growing the order. So they started building Templar houses across Europe. During the Crusade, a lot of people think of the Crusade as being uh, very much focused on present-day Israel uh, and the Middle East. What a lot of people uh, aren't aware of, or at least forget, is that there was also uh, a struggle between uh, the Islamic world and the the, the European world going on in Spain with the uh, the Moors crossing the, the Strait of Gibral- Gibraltar into the Iberian Peninsula. And there's this period of hundreds of years called the Reconquista, which is the reconquering, uh, in, in which Europe pushed back down into Spain, driving the Moors out of Spain, which didn't really complete until the 15th century. So there were also Templars, as the order grew, the Templars started working over in the West, helping with the Reconquista. So that means that you need a a network across pretty much the entire mediterranean pretty much yeah so if they're already about protecting pilgrims in the east and they're already doing the route sort of from jaffa to jerusalem but you know who knows how the pilgrims are getting there well why not expand into either renting or owning boats under templar control with templar soldiers that can actually carry them from the south of france all the way to The Mediterranean or uh, all the way to Jaffa that way they can protect the ships from pirates in the Mediterranean which were a big problem at the time I don't know if you've you're you're familiar with the Barbary coast at all but North Africa was just swimming with pirates at this point in time so let's expand our navy to better let's have have a navy yeah let's let's have a navy in the Mediterranean to, to better serve these these pilgrims right Set up houses all across Europe, in in France mainly, but also in Germany and in Italy, to help recruit people to the order. You know, and and it just starts blowing up, more members, more locations, more land, more money, uh, so much money at this point in time. <laughs> um, and there starts being this rumor, which there's there's always rumors about stuff like this, but it's tied to the fact that they've been giving the uh, gi- they've been given the Al-Aqsa Mosque, which they're calling the Temple of Solomon, that the original Templars who lived there excavated the mosque. Now, it's true that they actually um, expanded the mosque. They added several wings because the mosque wasn't exactly, exactly huge and they're trying to house a number of people in there. Let's make it a little bit bigger. Let's, let's move out the walls a little bit. There are these rumors that they actually excavated and they found something in this mosque. Right. And that's what's contributing to their huge you know, exponential growth of wealth. And still the individual members themselves are poor, but the order itself is got, getting more money than really it knows what to do with. And it's setting up businesses with the money or with the land that it's been being given. This is a great time to talk about the three the three orders within the Knights Templar. There were the knights, uh, which, as I said earlier, made up about 10% of the order. You had to be a knight before you became a Templar in order to be a knight Templar, like with uh, a knight within the order. Uh, the knights wore uh, a white uh, tunic and had the the red the red cross uh, the red cross yeah. yeah that that didn't come into being until thirty or forty years into it's the, the image I associate of the order. with them for sure most people do and yeah. once the once the the Templar cross was associated with the order all Templars wore it in fact at all times you had to sleep in your not your full armor but like in your tunic and belt and boots ready to go at any point in time you had to be ready to serve. You Couldn't eat unless you were kitted out, ready to go. It was this, this, because this is the, the, the flip side of this, uh, this piety and this, um, monastic lifestyle is that part of what you're part of the ascetic life that you're leading is a full devotion to your training as a, a warrior, right? And so, while other knights would take all of this stuff off and go to bed in a nice, you know, comfortable bed with a nice, comfortable sleepwear, these guys were at all times, ready to fight in service of the Lord. And therefore, part of uh, the uh, rigors, part of the things that reminded them not to lead a sinful life was to be battle-ready at all times. That sounds extraordinarily uncomfortable. Absolutely. And it was meant to be. Yeah. uh, To some degree. But, I mean, also not to a masochistic degree. For example, in the East, they were allowed to wear a linen shirt between Easter and... Uh, essentially, November uh, All Saints' Day, because because of the extreme heat, and it's right in there. But it also says this isn't a this is a this is a charity, and this is something that could be revoked if uh, if a brother didn't deserve it, right. right? But this is a thing that we're doing uh, as as a as a service to our knights in, in gratitude for their their service to the Lord. Um, so again, you see this balance between you know having to be battle ready at all times, but being given lighter clothes to wear in the east. Which is really similar to, you know, the, the consistent fasting, but also being given meat to keep your strength up. Right. You know, like this this very functional form as, of asceticism. We want you to be a monk, but since that would stop you from being... A very good warrior. Yeah. We're going to some... help you be a warrior too. Right. And build that warrior lifestyle into the, the as I said, the really ascetic uh, lifestyle of a monk. And so the two actually complement each other fairly well. So you've got the knights which, who are wearing the, the white tunics. You've also got... Again, almost the rest of the order are what are known as sergeants. Now, a sergeant doesn't mean the same thing as it means now. It basically means a a fighting servant. Uh, It it comes from a Latin root of one who serves. Hmm. And all of the sergeants were trained in warfare, and they'd be closer to a light cavalry. They would have a single horse. They would be taught to ride sort of really fast, really mobile uh, attacks uh, with a lance. But for the most part, what the sergeants were really doing in day-to-day life was things like uh, acting as the blacksmith for the house or acting as an administrator for the Templar own business or acting, as, you know, things like that that are very, like, functional administrative. Mind you, when a battle came up, they were still strapping on you know, less armor, but still strapping on armor and they were still getting on a horse and they were still fighting. So sergeants would wear brown or black with the red Templar cross. Okay. There was a third order kind of added after the the uh, papal endorsement, which was the the chaplains, and they were priests. Again, had to already be ordained outside of the order before joining the Templars. And they would wore, wear uh, green with the with the red cross, and these priests would serve only. Well, not only, but they they would serve the the Templars. The Templars would only see Templar chaplains. Were they also was, battle ready? And uh, no, they would not serve in battle necessarily. I'm sure they receive training if absolutely necessary, but they wouldn't go onto the field in the combat role. The chaplains were a further measure towards kind of freeing them from any political affiliation. Because if you're going to a priest who has been ordained by a bishop who is tied to a diocese, who has been appointed by an archbishop, who has been appointed by a cardinal, there are certain political favors that are being played within the church structure right? Mm -hmm. By allowing the Templars to have their own chaplains, there is again this direct line straight from the Pope to these uh, priests. So So again, they can't be influenced by outside. Yeah, exactly. Um, It it completely frees them of that outside influence, which is a really interesting factor or a a really interesting feature of the order. The Templar Knights, I think I said earlier, were, were heavy cavalry. And, their code of conduct dictated that they be in the initial charge of any battle and that they not retreat under any circumstances. The only way a retreat could happen is if uh, either they were outnumbered uh, at least three to one and the master gave the order of retreat, for which he would be held severely accountable if it wasn't a reasonable uh, order, or if the Templar flag. Fell, which basically meant that the line had collapsed and that the uh, that the the forces that they were fighting with were routing, like the Templar forces were routing. And even then, their order or their their rules dictated that they first try to rally to one of the other religious orders' flags, so either the Hospitallers or the Teutonic Knights. Rally to them and finish out the battle, fighting alongside the Hospitallers or alongside the Teutonic Knights. They were hardcore about battle.
1: Yeah. They
0: gained a very fearsome reputation and for a very good reason. I mean, these are men who devoted themselves to training and to prayer. That's all they did. And martyrdom was held up as a very high calling to the Knights Templar because they saw any war that they were fighting in as a religiously just war. And to fall fighting that battle meant falling in service to God. Good way to go. Extremely good way to go if you're a Templar. And... Yeah, it's. I mean, you hear things said about you know religious extremists these days, and the, this idea of using martyrdom as a as an incentive. Hey, this isn't a new concept, and we'll kind of leave any judgment on on worth of causes to other podcasts because I don't want to get into that. Yeah, that's fair. But uh, I think it's really important to realize that these guys are fighting for the same things. Like, it's not there. There isn't something necessarily. Uh, more noble about it because uh, we associate more closely culturally with their cause than someone else's these were were men who were fighting to the death and would welcome death if it came weren't necessarily seeking death but were absolutely open to the possibility if it came down to it right as such they gained this this reputation as being like just unrelenting warriors because they didn't care they either won or they died and they were okay with both sides so are they in
1: a lot of wars at this point? Because their primary job was protection.
0: Right. But the the thing that the, the story of the Templars as an organization is expanding the definition of protection <laughs> because as they grow, the kingdom, the, the, the Latin kingdom comes under attack from the other powers in the region, mainly Arab, but, but there's, there's a number of others, and That puts the Holy Land in jeopardy, which threatens the pilgrims. So if this is a battle that is protecting Christians, protecting Christendom, as it were, the Templars are willing to lend their support. This is not a political thing. This is a spiritual thing. So any of the Crusades that come up from here on out, there are Templars that are involved in that Crusade because it is seen as a holy and just war, as well as any skirmishes that are happening that are designed specifically towards... Uh, defending the Kingdom of Jerusalem, um, specifically from the Islamic world. So yeah, absolutely. They start becoming involved in a lot of battles at this point. They have a lot more men to devote to battles at this point. And they gained a very, very strong reputation with their, with their enemies because they would charge in one mass, just a whole bunch of them, and it was known as the Squadron Charge. And it wasn't really that organized, but... This is a game of chicken and they're not turning the wheel right so it doesn't really matter how strong your lines are when you know that these guys are going to come at you and they're coming straight at you as an individual there's a very strong chance that you're going to go okay you know what i don't want to deal with this i changed my mind i don't want to fight this battle the other side might not be quite so willing to die on the field of battle exactly right and this is a time in history where warfare is about the line right you need to preserve the integrity of the line the Templars were all about breaking the line. So, by smashing into it. By smashing into it with reckless abandon. <laughs> and they were really good at it, and it was very successful, and they tended to do really well in battles yeah. for exactly this reason. And so, I mean, you know, they, they, they gained a reputation as much for their their military prowess as their as their religious piety. So all around, the, the, the Order is looking really good at this point in time. They, they seem like a, a horse that's worth backing. There would be people that would come into the Order on a temporary basis, usually squires, because each each knight would have a squire, usually hired on on a temporary basis. Uh, because, again, while poor, they're being equipped by the Order. And it's really hard, at you know, in the, in the 12th century to fight as an effective knight without someone helping you onto your horse or helping you, uh, you know, giving you lances when you've broken one, things right. like
1: that. And they wouldn't use the sergeants as squires, because I guess they had a lot of other jobs to do.
0: Yes, the sergeants would be uh, used if they were being used in warfare. They would be used as light caval- cavalry They're to combatants. sort of yes, yeah, yeah. So the the squires were almost always outside, and often the squires would be people who were considering joining the Knights Templar themselves, but had not yet been knighted and wanted to serve in a knight role rather than a sergeant role, or they just wanted to serve and weren't sure that they wanted to make a lifetime commitment, which is. Kind of reasonable you're trying it out and they had no problems with hiring people on on a temporary basis now mind you when you were hired on you played by their rules you hired on for a set contract and you were a templar effectively until the end of your contract at which time you were given back the value of the things that you had turned in at the beginning of your contract that seems very generous sure but
1: while there you had to follow 72 rules
0: yeah exactly yeah yeah and uh come to think of it i think sometimes you didn't get back the entire value you got back a you know, a two-thirds value of say a horse that you donated or something like that, but essentially you were sent on your way more or less the way you had come. Right. I want to talk for a second, just a second, about beards. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I am on board with this. The Templars were famous for having extremely long beards, and I I don't know. I found this really fascinating. But in 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 some of the uh, the Inquisitions that that are going to be happening, happening later in the uh, late 13th, early 14th centuries they would keep records of weird things like who had a beard. And I found records of a a block of over 200 Templars that under 10% of them didn't have a beard. They were well known for having really long beards. Now, uh, to be fair, some of them, a lot more of them didn't have beards, but that's because they had shaved off their beards in an attempt to go unnoticed by the Inquisitions. Because they thought maybe if I lose my beard, people (laughs) won't think I'm a Templar. (laughs) A lot of people have posited that this goes hand in hand with serving in the Middle East, where having a long beard was more of a status symbol than it necessarily would have been in Europe, where at this point in time, actually, a lot of people were clean shaven. This idea of the, the bearded knight wasn't really as common as, as some might think. They were used, I've seen posited at least, as just one more psychological edge on the battlefield. If your enemy respects someone with a long beard, maybe grow a long beard. Yeah, I could see that. There's also kind of an indication towards this this culture of inclusion, right, within the Templars where if all your brother Templars are growing beards, maybe you'll get on board with the long beard. I would get
1: along well with these guys.
0: Yeah. So I, I don't know, I just thought I'd bring that up. I thought you might be interested. <laughs> um, but, you know, as 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 the order grows and changes, there's um there's there's a lot of expansions of this this protection role. So uh, I talked about, uh, talked about the Navy, talked about the, the further uh, land holdings, the businesses that they started growing. There was sort of a, a Western branch and an Eastern branch of the Templars, Eastern being in the Holy Land, actually fulfilling their original direct protection of the pilgrim sort of um, mission, and the West that is more administrative, doing things like running businesses that would make money, that would support the efforts in the East. And then they came up with this really interesting idea which is why don't we make it so that these pilgrims have nothing that they can be robbed of let's just let's just cut that whole carrying the gold thing out of the equation altogether so here's what we're going to do instead there's a templar house in like every like reasonable size city and up in europe and you're going on pilgrimage so before, what you're looking at is you have to pay servants, you have to pay probably protection for your land while you're gone so that you don't come back and just find it completely sacked. And it's probably going to lie fallow this entire time. So here's what I'm going to do. While you're away off on your pilgrimage, you turn your land over to me. I'm going to get a bunch of Templars to work it the entire time, as well as protect it. You let me keep the crops that is produ- that are produced from your land as we'll call it a donation and when you get back we're gonna turn the deed right back over to you but wait there's more what we're gonna do is when you're going on pilgrimage i know you want to take some donations that you want to make right at the sites right at these holy sites that you're going to see but then you're carrying all this really inconvenient gold moreover you have to pay for your stay there so Mm -hmm. i'll tell you what how much gold do you have and what's your name oh okay you've got so many pieces of gold you this is your name this is your identity great i'm going to take that gold off of your hands and i'm going to write a note saying that colin oliver turned in 70 pieces of gold at such and such a templar house i'm going to make my mark as master of this house that is going to be recognizable and i'm going to hand you this piece of paper which is worthless and you're going to go you're going to travel to the holy land on one of our ships probably for a donation maybe You're going to get there, you're going to go to a Templar house in Jerusalem, and you're going to turn in this letter, and we're going to give you the value that you turned in. Now you don't have the inconvenience, just weight-wise, of carrying all this gold. You don't have to worry about being robbed, because frankly, the highwaymen know that you're not carrying anything. Why bother? I'm not going to kill you for a piece of paper. That's dumb. And all of a sudden, the level of security in your pilgrimage has just gone up immensely, as well as the level of your worry... About your holdings at home has just gone down immensely. That all seems really smart. They basically invented the modern check. They invented the
1: modern check completely. And in doing so, they became so, a bank. Made themselves a bank exactly. That held money and property for people. Mm-hmm. That's insane.
0: Yeah, they they kind of they kind of mortgaged their proper their properties. Yeah, exactly. Now it's really important to understand that at this point in time, charging someone interest is actually a huge sin and i could talk about this this is gonna be a weird sentence just bear with me i could talk about the dynamics between religion and banking specifically with the issue of usury which is charging interest for probably an entire podcast and i would find it really interesting i don't know if anyone (laughs) else would i find this stuff really fascinating but charging interest big no-no okay this is actually oh sorry
1: oh sorry you mentioned that they were keeping the crops
0: that is that not is a
1: kind of interest?
0: A great question, and a question that a lot of people would ask. They would say, "No, this is a donation that people are giving us, and besides, we're not actually charging interest." And there are other banks at this point in time that are doing uh, that are that are making other allowances for interest. Like say, for example, loaning you a hundred dollars, but keeping a ten dollar upfront charge, so that. You actually owe me one hundred and ten dollars, but I've charged it up front, so it's not actually accumulating interest on the. It, it, it's it's it gets super sketchy. Yeah, is what I'm driving at here. It's not technical interest, but it is kind of breaking the spirit of the usury laws. Right. This is also what I wanted to say. Is is where the whole jewish banker thing comes up Mm -hmm. because there's also a prohibition against in, in judaism but in both christianity and judaism the prohibition is against charging your brothers is the actual line any interests which is generally interpreted as other jews or other christians which means that Jews as a marginalized society were able to bank in the way that we understand it now, charging interest. And it wasn't a sin to borrow money with interest on it. It was just a sin to charge someone else interest. And so that was part of the marginalization of the the Jewish uh, community in Europe is that they were growing extremely wealthy off of this interest, which they were completely able to charge, which led to resentment from Christian bankers, and also led to uh, a much wealthier subgroup within European society. Again, completely other topic. That's, yeah. you know, that's that's the one about religious banking that we're going to do at some point. <laughs> <laughs> and it'll be three hours long. Uh, it's, it's actually more fascinating than it sounds. But I digress I horribly. What we're looking at here is a banking system that's set up by Templars for other Christians. And again, is this expansion of the idea of pro- uh, protecting pilgrims, pilgrims. Yeah. yeah so i think yeah that's that's that i think that says a lot about sort of the the way that the templars get from nine guys that are protecting this one road to an organization that not only spans europe but actually sort of penetrates the entirety of european society because you know people weren't just relying on this bank system to go from france to current day israel they were Relying on it for trips within France, because why not? So this stopped being a service just for pilgrims and started being a service for travelers, because why not? Again, yeah. it's 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 providing a service within if they the, have the infrastructure in it place. It does not uh, break any of the rules of the Templars or of Christianity, and all of a sudden, the Templars have just made themselves the most important financial institution in Europe. Wow! Wow!
1: Wow! Is right. So how many members are there at this point? roughly S-
0: tens of thousands yeah and you're including all the chaplains and all of the course, sergeants yeah, as all well the yeah. but um yeah it's 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 fairly large at this point i think we're nearing a really good end point but i want to talk about one more thing before before we wrap things up at least for this section which is kind of the beginning of the decline of the the templars because we've been talking about sort of expanding this mission but still really being focused on that initial mission of protecting pilgrims right well there's been this pushback against the latin state in palestine for quite some time until eventually jerusalem is actually recaptured by the arabs and the european foothold in palestine keeps being pushed further and further away from jerusalem until basically they're centered in a city called uh, acre where uh coincidentally the the hospitallers and teutonic knights also have headquarters i mean these these orders overlap quite a bit at this point in time and in 1291 acre actually falls and it's the last foothold in palestine that any of the fighting orders actually hold now the closest uh headquarters that the templars have to the holy land is in or on the island of cyprus you know sort of a pit stop on your way to to sailing to palestine right and it sort of was a bit of a crisis for the order because what do we do now? Like, what's our purpose? Why do we exist? Which is a really great question. And I think what happened at this point is they started looking at, well, what else are we providing as a service to, to Christians, to Europe? And where can we go as an order where we're still sort of providing the same types of service, so without losing the identity of the, of the order? But clearly on a on a new path because i mean they tried taking back palestine a number of times but really by 1298 they have more or less given up on taking back any holdings in the holy land at least for the time being the teutonic knights around this time well a couple of decades earlier at least had essentially created the state of prussia by pushing into sort of the eastern european steppes as a way of kind of expanding christianity right because the the lithuanians while some of them were Christian, were usually Orthodox Christian, and that was a whole other messy thing that the Crusades get into is the difference between Roman Catholicism and and Orthodox Christianity. Right. And one of the, uh, I was going to say one of the bigger stains on the the Crusades. That's there's a lot of stains there. So <laughs> I guess that's saying a lot. But it, it's it's one of the the hardest things to justify, even when being extremely kind to that worldview. Extremely kind. It's still the, the, the fall of Constantinople to the, the Western Crusaders is it makes no sense. It's just it seems counterproductive and petty and very political. But anyways, completely different story. <laughs> the, the, the Teutonic Knights have set up a state, which is a st- essentially a Teutonic state. So they've transcended from being a, an order that is uh, free of all bounds, much like the Templars were authorized by the pope and 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 so on to uh an order that actually controls political territory and the templars went we could probably do that they're already looking at cyprus where they'd actually kind of uh maybe helped a little bit in a coup um in 1306 maybe gotten one of the younger brothers on the throne who was a little more amenable to the templar order than his older brother had been convenient uh-huh. And there were definitely plans in place to kind of take over the island of Cyprus and make it a Templar island. Who would they be taking it from? The people living there. <laughs> there was, a, there was <laughs> a king of Cyprus. Cyprus was its own state. We can call it a state. They're, the idea of statehood is a little muddy at this point in history, but for sake of convenience, it was a state. There was a king of Cyprus. There was also a lot of talk about taking the uh, the Languedoc region of France, which is basically southern france like on the coast it would kind of encompass toulouse and montpellier Uh, it was a fairly sizable chunk of land it's not really a region that exists anymore so i'll probably just link a map for it so you get an idea of where they were looking to kind of establish themselves but here's the thing germany at that point in time was a loose affiliation of states under the holy roman empire and you could kind of play with the borders a little bit right france is a monolith and has been for quite a long time you know, yeah, it expands every once in a while. And sometimes it loses some border to to a German state or to Italy or to Spain or whoever happens to be fighting. But it's not really as easy to carve a piece out. And yet they kind of had their eye on it.
1: So where does, like, a want that I'ma take it fit in with their, you know,
0: rules? I think that the Templars would probably argue that a state that's being administered by Templars under Templar uh, ideals is more conducive to the salvation of humanity than one that's being uh, ruled by a secular king, even one that is Christian. Convenient? Of course it is. I mean, I'm I'm not going to pretend that they're necessarily in the right here, but the the logic follows. Fair enough. I think it's with this loss of purpose or loss of direction that we're going to leave things today because this is sort of the knights templar that we think about when we think about the almost instantaneous disappearance of the knights templar this is the organization that falls this is the this is the knights templar that everyone points to and has all sorts of theories about and and questions about so in terms of stopping places i think this is a really good one so why don't we leave it here today and we'll pick it up next time with what goes wrong sounds Sounds good. good Over a period of less than 200 years, the Knights Templar had transformed themselves from an intensely pious militant monastic order into one of the wealthiest and most influential organizations in Europe. Yet it was exactly this perceived invincibility that would make their fall so intriguing even to this day. Next time on HI101, we'll talk about what exactly happened to finally take them down. That episode will be up on June 15th. As the format of this show inevitably leads to factual errors, I encourage you to visit hi101.ca and check out the corrections posted there. That's hi101.ca. If there are any errors I haven't addressed there, please let me know and I'll add them to the notes. And remember, HI101 is a broad introduction. If the subject we've discussed today has caught your attention, I encourage you to look for more information. It only gets better from here. I'm Adam Blesky, and this has been HI101.